0: Even if we think about the anti-compulsory hijab protests, it would have been very easy for the regime to loosen some of those restrictions or to rein in the quote unquote morality police, but instead responded with the detention, disappearance, and torture of, of women activists who were peacefully protesting. And so I think it's led protesters in this moment to, to see the only feasible outcome as being revolutionary change. And so those chants reflect that. You know, in addition to Jian Azadi, protesters. Are saying, you know, down with the Islamic Republic, death to the dictator.
1: That's Marie Ranjbar, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Marie Ranjbar on Iran, Zan Zandagi Azadi, Woman, Life, Freedom. Since mid September, tens of thousands of Iranians have taken to the streets across the country to protest the government's treatment of girls and women, and in particular, mandatory dress codes. These historic demonstrations center on women's socio-political rights and democratic governance in Iran. The government has brutally responded. Hundreds have been killed, including children. Many thousands have been arrested. Despite the regime's violent crackdown, Protests have only widened. Demonstrators are shouting, death to the dictator. The Islamic Republic, now in its 43rd year, has never faced such sustained and widespread opposition. Can it remain in power? The slogan of the protest movement is Zan Azadi, woman, life, freedom. Our guest today to talk about Iran is Marie Ranjbar. She is assistant professor in the department of women's and gender studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her research examines social movements in Iran and integrates feminist political geography with critical human rights and decolonial feminist theory. I talked with her in the studios of KGNU in Boulder. Welcome to the program.
0: Thank you for having me, David.
1: Well, since September 16th, with the custodial death of uh, Zina Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman who was arrested for some kind of hijab, headscarf infraction, Iran has been convulsed by widespread demonstrations and protests. The protests did not occur in a vacuum. So I'd like you to talk about the context and the role of Iranian women in resistance, going back to the early part of the 20th century. What's that trajectory look like?
0: Yeah, thank you for that excellent question. Um, and as you rightly noted, David, Iranian women have always been um, at the forefront of political activism within Iran. Um, so historically, we can think about women's central roles in the um, the constitutional revolution of the early 1900s. We see women heavily involved in the 1950s nationalist movement, as well as women uniting across ideological lines uh, leading up to the 1979 uh, revolution. And we also see a history of Iranian women's activism, specifically in relation to bodily autonomy, uh, specifically with regards to state-enforced veiling and unveiling, both pre- and post-revolution. So as an example, we can think about the 1936 Unveiling Act. This was an act that was passed by uh, Reza Khan, uh, the first monarch of the Pahlavi monarchy, And he basically passed this act that um, allowed for the forced unveiling of women in public space. Um, And this was quite extreme at the time. At times, women in public space were forced to unveil at Bayonet Point it had the opposite intended effect of having Iranian women in public space. And in fact, many women refused to leave their houses for fears of humiliating encounters with the police. And Reza Khan very much discursively framed this as uh, modernizing women, modernizing Iran. This was part of a a larger uh, modernizing project that was predicated on um, embracing Western liberal values. And so it wasn't just Iranian women's bodies um, that Um, encountered state surveillance. Uh, Part of this unveiling act was also in tandem with encouraging Iranian men to forego traditional clothing and to wear Western clothing. And we see something very similar happening in um, 1979 and 1983 when Khomeini comes to power and Iran becomes an Islamic republic. So in 1979, we see the imposition of compulsory hijab. And 1983, the passing of the Veiling Act, which forced women under state surveillance to wear proper hijab in public space. And I think importantly, both the 1936 Vailing Act and the 1979 and 1983 unveiling acts left Iranian women bereft of choice and really curtailed bodily autonomy. And we can still see photos, uh, for example, um, from the early 1980s of women gathering in mass to protest against compulsory hijab. We've seen a, a few different waves of anti-compulsory hijab protests. Um, most recently, we can think about the 2016 and 2017 Girls of Revolution Street protests. This began in late 2017 when Vida Muvahedi um, removed her veil on one of the busiest streets in Tehran. It's called En or Revolution Street. And she removed her veil, she held it from a stick, and she waved it from on top of a utility box for almost an hour. Um, She was subsequently arrested by ostensibly the quote-unquote morality police, um, and no one heard from her for over a month. This prompted a huge Twitter campaign called Where is the Girl of Revolution Street? And this sparked a number of protests with uh, women unveiling in public space and really um, laying bare the violence of compulsory hijab, which is, continues to be framed by the Iranian regime as necessary for women's protection. But we, of course, see the deep violence of the morality police in enforcing mandatory hijab. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons that um, the death of Gina Massa Amini was such um, a spark of outrage um, because it's a near universal experience for Iranian girls, and women, particularly of a particular age, uh, to be surveilled by morality police and subject to deep violence with the slightest infractions of their hijab.
1: Let me ask you, if uh, if you think that uh, Reza Shah, mm-hmm. in 1936, when he enacted this uh, mm-hmm. ban mm-hmm. on hijab, was influenced by what had happened in neighboring Turkey— mm-hmm. Kamal Pasha, Kamal Ataturk Mm -hmm. uh, banned Islamic dress, essentially, and introduced Western-style clothing.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think that's a really great comparison of, um, yeah, of these figureheads really trying to push forward secular, modernized nations. I mean, we can also think about it in terms of imperial history, right? So, um, you know, the Persian Empire uh, had diminishing influence in the 1800s, 1900s, um, and was really trying to continue to be seen by its European peers as, as as equal in terms of, of imperial status. And so, um, so I think part of this is uh, Reza Khan's effort to be taken seriously um, on the world stage in a moment of global diminishing power. But we can also think about um, certain parts of the modernizing project that also sheds light on what's happening now. I mean, part of 1930s and 1940s projects uh, to push Iran forward under a modernizing uh, discourse was uniting Iranians across cross-ethnic lines, right? And so we see, for example, the shifting of, of Persia to the name Iran, lands of the Aryans only officially recognizing one language, Farsi or Persian, um, really centering on Persian exceptionalism, tying Persian identity to an Aryan identity. And then we really do see the suppression of different ethnic minority communities uh, within Iran, including the the Kurdish minority population in Iran. And so uh, we continue to see some of those um, fissures within these current protests when we're thinking about the identity of Jina Amini um, and this long history of suppression of, of ethnic minority communities, including through language rights, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, the slogan "Genjian uh, Azadi," you know, this Kurdish slogan of "of women, life, and freedom" is so powerful because it really is centering a Kurdish identity and the intersection of ethnic identity with gender and sexuality and the lived experience of ethnic minority women in Iran.
1: And in Farsi, it's "Zan Zandegi Azadi." Yes, right? exactly. Now, most people don't realize how diverse. Uh, Iran's population Mm -hmm. of 85 million is, with minorities such as the Azeris, Mm -hmm. 17 million, Mm -hmm. Kurds, 10 million, Mm -hmm. Arabs, 2 million, Mm -hmm. and other minorities such as Armenians, Jews, and Assyrians. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a mosaic, but you're saying that the Persian element of that mosaic has been dominating.
0: Absolutely, and um, and as I said, that you know we really do see that under the Pahlavi monarchy, and it continues into post-revolutionary uh, Iran, and I think that that context is also very important because if we look at state suppression of protests, some of the most brutal. Um, a state reactions to protests over the death of, of Gina Amini has been in the Kurdish region of Iran, as well as Balochistan. And these are historically marginalized groups within the country. And so, again, really centering this Kurdish chant as uh, as part of this resistance um, to the regime, I think, is really powerful in this moment. And it really does center how intersectional this feminist uprising has been.
1: You use that term in, in a couple of your uh, essays. What, what What do you mean by it? Intersectionality.
0: So I think in in, in the context of, of these protests, um, you know, we have a number of social movements that precede this moment. So over the past fifteen years, you know, we can think about the 2009 Green Movement uprisings in 2017 and 2019, which were really undergirded by uh, economic grievances. Um, but those previous waves of protests, you know, with the Green Movement, it was it was largely centered in urban areas, upper and middle class. Um, in 2017, 2019. We we do really see a concentrated amongst Um, working-class Iranians, but this iteration of protests is really cutting across uh, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and class, and so what we really see is unprecedented, um, one, in terms of of scale, so these protests are not just concentrated in urban areas like previous social um, justice movements, but are really across uh, urban and rural lines, including in regime strongholds like Khom and Mashhad, and so we also see um, sort of intersectional solidarity across both religious, Um, and secular Iranian women. So that's really important. Um, We see the intersection of how um, the state surveils women's bodies across ethnic lines. And so I think seeing, for example, Tehran protesters um, striking and protesting in solidarity with brutal crackdowns in places like Balochistan and Kurdistan and really forefronting um, how these ethnic minority communities have been um, oppressed historically and and, and in the present moment is really intersectional in nature. Seeing men march alongside women with women's rights being really central to these protests is also unprecedented. So again, women have always been at the forefront of social movements in Iran, but this is the first time we're seeing the centrality of women's rights um, in the protests. And so, yes, seeing that sort of solidarity across genders is also quite intersectional. And I think that there is an intergenerational element of it as well. Um, And I I just read this morning that the vast majority of those that have been detained are under the age of 25, right? And so we really do see um, this uprising led by Gen Z, but with intergenerational support from those who have memories of the revolution and the Iran-Iraq war um, and whose tactics for opposing the regime um, have looked very differently um in this current moment. So, so thinking intersectionally, um, how the regime has violated human rights across the lines of age, gender, sexuality, religion, um, and ethnic background is, is, I think, really important to forefront in our analysis of what's happening.
1: You talk about, I'm quoting, enduring Western fantasies about uh, Iranian women what shape and form do they take particularly in this current period mm-hmm.
0: I mean that's a that's a really interesting question and I've been thinking a lot about this particularly in regards to um, one what does transnational solidarity in this moment look like but also thinking about the scale and visibility of this current feminist uprising and so um, as we chatted about a few minutes ago um, there's many waves of protests that precede this current moment um, that are focused on economic grievances socio-political grievances Uh, in addition to women's rights. But those previous waves of protests did not achieve uh, visibility in Anglophone media or US media, right? Um, So I'm thinking about, for example, um, we're at the anniversary of uh, Bloody Aban, or uh, Bloody November. Um, This was during the 2019 uprising in Iran. It resulted from a sudden spike in both gas prices and food prices, and within a span of three days, the regime killed upwards of 1,500 protesters, and that received scant attention in um, U.S. media. Why is that? Um, Well, so I'm, I'm thinking about how U.S. audiences are primed to equate Iranian women's oppression and Middle Eastern women's oppression more broadly with the hijab. Um, And so I think that we're sort of primed to think about oppression and resistance through the symbol of the hijab. And I think that those sorts of images from this current moment of women burning hijab um, has been very legible for U.S. audiences um, because of the long history of imperialism in the region and Orientalist uh, narratives of what women's daily lives look like in this region of the world. But I think for the 2017 and 2019 protests, those very much were images of largely Iranian men in the streets, and I think we're sort of equated with general political instability within the Middle East, which I really don't think U.S. audiences are primed to care about as much as seeing Women burning their hijabs in the street, and I and I think I think in this moment we have to be very careful about how we are interpreting some of those symbols of these protests, right? And so when we see this these powerful images of, of women burning hijabs in the streets um, or cutting their hair, this isn't a rejection um, of Islam per se but really it's a rejection of state authority that is born on the bodies of women right um, and I think this is very similar to um, under the, the the Pahlavi monarchy positioning women's bodies through Western dress as somehow secular and modern and uh, post-revolution with women um, in Islamic clothing in hijab as being markers of an anti-imperialist um, Islamic nation right and so I think that Iranian uh, girls and women are really Really pushing back um, on how their bodies have been used as as markers of nationalism, um, and really forefronting one questions of choice in regards to bodily autonomy, how they choose to appear in public space um, without being harassed or potentially killed uh, by quote unquote morality police because of very slight infractions of these clothing rules, and I think. Um, perhaps one of the reasons that this moment gains global visibility uh, is also because in the U.S. and across the world, we're seeing a global rollback on women's rights. Uh, So within the U.S., we're grappling with the um, aftermath of the fall of Roe versus Wade, right, and really thinking about bodily autonomy and state surveillance of of our bodies. And this isn't unique to the U.S. And so I I also think that this is a unique moment um, for transnational solidarity, where we don't simply see Iranian women as unfree others um, who are oppressed uh, through um A piece of of, of clothing, but rather we're thinking about um, how um, right-wing authoritarian repressive governments uh, continue to treat women as second-class citizens um, and how we can sort of unite in this moment. And importantly, really pushing back on this narrative that feminism moves from the West to the East or from global North to global South, but really saying Iranian girls and women are charting a path forward and thinking about uh, resistance, effective forms of resistance against um, patriarchal authoritarian governments that are enacting incredible violence to position women as symbols of the nation.
1: The issue of the hijab comes up in Canada, in France. Mm -hmm. In fact, in India, it's the reverse. Mm -hmm. Uh, In one area in the the southern part of the country, Karnataka, I believe, Muslim women want to wear the hijab Mm -hmm. and are being prevented from doing so Mm -hmm. by uh, state laws.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I think, again, David, that really does focus on what does bodily autonomy look like in this moment um, and really sort of moving past sort of binary ideas of unfree global South women. Right. Um, And sort of. Uh, positioning um, feminist revolt within a Global North context and really thinking about, no, globally, what does it look like for uh, women across different um, socio-historical and political contexts to be denied basic bodily autonomy, whether that takes the form of reproductive injustice, battles with um, state surveillance of women's bodies and public space, and violence against women more broadly being codified into national law.
1: And the... Orientalist framework in which a lot of this discourse and narratives occur uh, brings in, you know, this whole idea of Muslim women, Iranian women Mm -hmm. being uh, mysterious, Mm -hmm. exotic, Mm -hmm. uh, sexual objects who crucially have no agency and are helpless and hapless. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I think that's right. And I think that being cognizant of those histories of Euro-American imperialism in the Middle East being justified through saving women is really important in this moment as we think about what is transnational solidarity with Iranian girls and women look like. So we see um, Iranians broadly, but especially Iranian girls, putting their bodies on the front line um, in order to initiate revolutionary change and calling for radically new feminist futures far beyond the Islamic Republic one way that we need to show solidarity is by centering their voices centering their own narratives their own wants and needs and not reading on some of the ways that we've historically talked about women as being unfree agents um, in this part of the world Um, but also being careful about um, how different calls for solidarity are framed through a history of US imperialism. Um, So for example, I've seen calls for regime change, and that that's very, very loaded, given 43 years of Cold War-esque tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And let's not forget, Iran is bordered by Afghanistan and Iraq, both countries that have been devastated through Euro-American imperialism. And so I think we really need to continue to come back to the voices of Iranian girls and women, how they're envisioning radically new futures, and being sure to not read onto them um, these narratives of them somehow being unfree or needing Western intervention, um, in order um, to be successful uh, in this uprising. Rather, they they really do need ethical forms of solidarity on their terms.
1: Uh, Saving women was one of the rationales given by the Bush administration for the invasion of uh, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Well, we saw how that worked out.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, And, um, you know, I was in Afghanistan off and on between 2005 and, and 2010, and you know the imposition of very particular ideas of what feminist liberation looked like were, were highly problematic. The women that the US was in conversation with uh, tended to be representative of a, of a very small sliver of Afghan women and, and really did sort of center sort of neoliberal forms of feminism and ultimately, I think that one of the ways that NATO and the US really failed Afghan women was by not censoring um, a sort of intersectional um, uh, women's rights movement within the country that was cognizant of women's needs across urban and rural areas, across different ethnic lines. Um, and um, yes, we have to be really uh, thoughtful about um, those tragic lessons and, and not repeat them in this moment.
1: Why do you think that, you know, given the structural hostility between the United States and Iran since the Islamic Revolution, Mm -hmm. which toppled one of their main vassals Mm -hmm. uh, in the region, uh, the Shah, you know, actually, I've got here a a little quote that uh, I dug up from um, Jimmy Carter's uh, visit to uh, Tehran in a banquet on New Year's Eve. January 31st, 1997. This is what he said. He called Iran an island of stability, unquote. He praised the Shah's great leadership, quote, unquote, and he added, the respect and admiration and love which your people give to you. Well, in little over a year, actually on January 16th, the monarchy crumbled and the Shah fled the country. It's interesting that you never know what's going to happen mm-hmm. and the suddenness of that revolution of course took everyone at least in the in the US and the so-called west by surprise
0: mm-hmm. that's a really interesting quote that i've actually be- been revisiting as well and yes while while it took folks in the US by surprise, um, I think it's important to really center all of the labor that went into to the eventual nineteen seventy nine revolution. I mean, we see um, quite a lot of organizing in the nineteen fifties around a nationalist movement, um, and of course, um, that period is is sort of interrupted is is. Because arrested. Arrested, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, the 1979 revolution would not have been possible without successive waves of, of coalitional organizing um, across ideological lines. So in the 1950s, of course, we see um, nationalist movements uh, throughout Iran. Um, and that moment is arrested by the 1953 coup d'etat against Mohammed Mossadegh um, by both the U.S. and the U.K., and subsequently reinstates the Shah as the leader of Iran. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Shah does some work to try to preempt revolution through, for example, the white revolution um, in terms of the socio- socio- socioeconomic reforms within the country. Um, but then we see throughout the 1970s, again, a broad coalitional work um, across ideological lines, secularists, Islamists, um, communist socialists that are all uniting against, um, you know, quite a number of, of grievances and human rights violations that are happening under the the Pahlavi uh, monarchy yeah, and and I
1: th- and how prominent w- were women in those movements
0: oh women were absolutely uh deeply involved in both the the 1950s nationalist movements as well as um, you know moving into the 1979 revolution and again uniting um, across ideological lines in opposition um to the corruption of the Pahlavi monarchy and you know they've they've Continue to uh, to be very prominent. Um, I mean, I remember during the 2009 Green Movement, you know, there were certain. Protests where women outnumbered the men, and so um, we, you know, we continue to see women's activism as being um, central to these movements. But returning to this current moment, uh, again, we can't see this in isolation. Uh, we have to really think about this moment as building on different waves of of civil disobedience, uh, different protest movements, um, and thinking about this. Yes, the really unprecedented in terms of of women's rights being um, front and center of This uprising, but also, you know, the reason that we have folks striking and uniting in protest across Iran is because of these broader economic and socio political grievances. But when we're thinking about what actually shifted between 1978 and 1979, and what remains to be seen with this current uprising, is, you know, will we get widespread protests? So we've seen over the past month, um, oil workers, for example, striking in solidarity, teachers, university professors. And that was really, I think, the nail in the coffin of the Pahlavis is when the Bazaris started to strike. um, The
1: merchant class.
0: Exactly. The merchant class, um, you know, in tandem with protesters. So that remains to be seen if we're really going to see, um, you know, continued strikes that will really take down, um, cripple the regime, um, especially at this moment where economically they're suffering from uh, both EU and U.S. sanctions. So that remains to be seen.
1: Sharif University is sometimes called the MIT of uh, Iran's educational system there too there have been walkouts and student strikes and mm-hmm. regime repression
0: I'm glad that you brought that up because um, anytime we see an uprising within Iran the universities are one of the first sites to be securitized um, this happened during the green movement um, we, you know we've seen over the past few months really disturbing images I believe it was Sharif University in the first weeks of the of the uprising um, where police were surrounding the campus and trapping students within car parks and basically detaining them as they were trying to to leave campus. But also, amazingly, seeing students and professors fighting back and keeping Basij out of university grounds for as long as possible. Basij being the militia. Yes, um, yes, being militia um, as well as other security forces. And so, uh, yeah, we continue to see uh, student walkouts, um, professors going on strike. There have also been reports, disturbingly, of surveillance around um, high schools Last month, um, there were reports of government officials reaching out to high school uh, teachers and administrators and urging them to move classes online, uh, to tell girls not to protest in the schoolyards. So we've seen um, schools, not just universities, become sort of battlegrounds um, of of regime uh, suppression of of these protests. And again, I I do want to underscore... Uh, human rights violations in regards to children's rights within Iran right now. Um, so currently, fifty-two children have been killed. But there's also been um, reports that children under eighteen are being sent to psychological, basically re-education uh, camps, where um, you know we we don't exactly know what's happening because it's hard to get accurate information out of Iran at this moment. You certainly do have a failed regime when they're targeting school children um, to quell the protests.
1: You're listening to Marie Ranjbar, Iran, Zan Zandegi Azadi, Woman, Life, Freedom. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us at one 800 1977 Again, that's one 800 444 or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. And talk about the, uh, the role of class. For example, the staggering Beverly Hills-type wealth to be seen in North Tehran mm-hmm. and in Lavasan, mm-hmm. a suburb of the capital. You know, I've seen these myself. Azadeh Moaveni writes about this in a recent New York Times op-ed. What about that income gap and people with enormous amounts of wealth and then the mm-hmm. rest of the population just trying to make ends meet?
0: Right. I mean, I think that's what's really remarkable about this moment is is folks uniting across class lines because, you know, as, as, as we talked about, the 2009 green movement was was widely critiqued as being concentrated amongst the urban middle and upper class, and the 2017 and 2019 uprisings were very much seen as revolts from working um, class and middle class too that have really suffered under you know government corruption, economic mismanagement, as well as broad-based punitive U.S. sanctions that have really crippled a number of sectors of Iran's economy. So. Yes, right now Iran is in crisis when it comes to its economy. Uh, We have over 50% inflation. The rial is now one of the lowest value currencies in the world. There's been ongoing protests in terms of laborers having unpaid wages. There's been successive strikes uh, from different laborers ranging from teacher strikes to uh, those in the oil industry to train conductors and bus drivers. And so there are sort of wide-standing economic grievances within the country, but I think it's really remarkable that folks from across class in both urban and rural areas are, are now joining the protests and are really centering the gendered effects of economic violence, specifically in ways that they impact uh, girls and women within the country.
1: Nadir Hashimi, who's the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver, says, I'm quoting, The failure of the reform project has directly led to this revolutionary moment in Iran. Mm -hmm. The protesters in Iran are demanding internal regime change, not foreign-sponsored regime change. In other words, he says, they want to dismantle the Islamic Republic of Iran.
0: I do agree with Dr. Hashemi's points. One about the failure of the Islamic Republic to reform in the most minor of ways, and how it has led to this current crisis, where Iranians, again across geography, across ethnicity, across gender, are calling for radical new change within the country, and so. Um, Dr. Hashemi is is referring to successive waves of reformist attempts um, working within the Islamic Republic of Iran to really institute the most basic of of human rights. Um, So we can think about the 1999 student-led uprisings under the Khatimi administration, which didn't result in any substantive change. The 2009 Green Movement was really focused on electoral reform and again focused on pretty basic requests in order to have legitimate free and fair elections. Um, and that was met with um, a brutal crackdown on civil society where we still have reformist leaders under house arrest or are forced into exile. And even if we think about the anti-compulsory hijab protests, it would have been very easy for the regime to loosen some of those restrictions or to rein in, um, the quote unquote morality police. Um, but instead, uh, responded with, uh, the detention, disappearance and torture of, of women activists who were peacefully protesting. So at every turn, when Iranians have tried to work within the structure of the Islamic Republic, the regime has instead responded, um, with tear gas, with bullets, uh, with internet blackouts, and effectively, uh, sending it to exile some of Iranians' brightest and most innovative um, communities. Um, and it also has created quite a lot of multi-generational trauma with forced displacement um, that many of us within the U.S. are grappling with at this moment. And so I think it's led uh, protesters in this moment to, to see the only um, feasible outcome as being revolutionary change and so those chants reflect that you know in addition to Azadi, protesters are saying you know down with the Islamic Republic death to the dictator in fact last night they set fire to Ayatollah Khomeini's childhood home right it's a complete rejection of authoritarian rule over the past 43 years that doesn't respect the most basic of human rights I hesitate to use the language of regime change because uh, for me that feels very imperial and really does feel in line with the war on terror and the remnants of those U.S. imperial projects. So I prefer to talk about this in terms of a revolutionary moment where Iranians on the streets are calling for a secular democracy that is predicated on human rights and women's rights um, more specifically.
1: Clearly, there's dwindling support for the Islamic Republic regime. But there still remains a core group of supporters, people who, you know, worship the Ayatollah. So who are those people who who have benefited from, from this regime that give it ongoing support? You've got the Republican guards. They have economic power. So this is really
0: interesting. So I'm going to sort of answer this in two parts. Uh, so first, there's a question of... Of why haven't there been sustained uprisings or call for call for a complete revolution, right? And so, so the reason I think that Iranians in the past have really focused on reformist movements and not calls for revolution or the overthrow of the government is because those previous revolutions lived through the trauma of the 1979 revolution. Um, the subsequent founding of the Islamic Republic, right? Um, And then the subsequent uh, brutal eight-year Iran-Iraq war. And it's notable that the generation at the forefront of this feminist uprising are younger generations that don't have memories of that. And so I think I think previous revolutions do I mean, excuse me, previous generations still do carry the, the trauma um, of those moments and really fear that instability that comes in the wake of revolution, especially in a region that is pretty hostile to Iran, Iran doesn't have a lot of friends um, in the Middle East in this moment, and so I think there has been a lot of fear in the past about being vulnerable to that, as well as fear from seeing the struggles that Afghanistan and Iraq have had in the wake of of, of, of regime change in those countries. Um, in terms of supporters of the Islamic Republic. Um, I think that there is a class that has benefited from the Islamic Republic staying in power. Uh, as you rightly know, um, you know the Revolutionary Guard, which controls uh, huge swaths of the Iranian economy, um, have have very much benefited from this. Um, you know, there's a clerical class that also benefits um, from um, from the system of, of clerical rule, and I think Reza Aslan has made some really interesting comments in over the past month about what would happen if um, if clerics in Roma Mashhad were to join in solidarity um, with the protests and, and and gesturing to some discontent um, with with the Islamic Republic right now. Um, but to tell you the truth, I don't really know any regime supporters I really can't speak to motivations other other than that Um, other than to say that uh, for for friends and family and colleagues that I have in Iran broadly their reasons for not participating in protests prior to this moment has just been um, a deep fear of instability and also a fear of you know Once you have a revolution, who knows what comes next? And that's also, I think, something that um, many Iranians are talking about in this moment. You know, this uprising doesn't is is leaderless, which is different than previous, um, you know, reformist movements. Um, There's not a clear ideology uh, behind this uprising other than this regime has to go. Um, And I think that social movements do need time to kind of think about what their platforms are and envision new futures. But I think that that's worrying uh, for folks um, who who did live, um, who did experience uh, pre-revolution and post-revolution, and who feel that the Islamic Republic was in fact worse than the Pahlavis, and a fear that maybe a worse form of government comes in. But um, again, I think it's important to continue to center the voices of protesters who I think are trying to envision radically new futures.
1: The Economist, which you cite with uh, several co-authors Uh, Had a piece recently saying the female protesters who are burning their headscarves all across Iran liken themselves to gazelles crossing a river infested with crocodiles. Riot police may pick off many of them, they admit, but the herd will reach salvation. They will bait the regime and its security forces by dancing, baring their hair, and torching the ubiquitous posters of the reigning Ayatollahs and generals. Uh, it's an interesting quote. Why did you choose to focus on it?
0: So that was uh, an article that came out within the first few weeks of, of protests. And I, I think it struck me and my co-authors as just being a sort of deeply Orientalist hot take on, on the protests. I mean, first it uses very evocative language, um, comparing Iranian girls and women to, to gazelles, which feels very dehumanizing almost a sort of frivolous way of of describing their tactics for protest as dancing around crocodiles and it it just seemed like a very absurdist way to describe the incredible courage and bravery of girls and women putting their bodies on on the front line to demand revolutionary change and i'm really heartened to see that some of U.S. media has instead begun to center the voices of protesters within the country, sometimes through statements or videos that are circulated through social media, at other times just focusing on their chance and their demands for what they want a future Iran to look like. But yes, I was very skeptical of of sort of initial reports that were one, misinterpreting important symbols of, of this moment, including the burning of hijab is somehow anti-Islamic. Or two, really describing, I think, the girls and women in demeaning terms that don't center, again, their incredible bravery and and courage in, in this moment, and, and lessons that we can learn from Iranian protesters in our own struggles within the U.S. Uh, for bodily autonomy and against police brutality.
1: How will U.S. people, Canadians, Europeans, how can they express their uh, solidarity with what's going on, but not hearkening back to a pre-colonial structure? Mm-hmm.
0: That's such an important question and one that I continue to grapple with um, because as a feminist scholar and an activist um I've spent much of my adult life writing against U.S. and European imperialism in this region. Um, and I think it's important to to really take seriously what solidarity from within the U.S., especially given over four decades of Cold War tensions, have looked like between these two countries. And so I think, first and foremost, what's really important is To keep the visibility firmly focused on Iran, I think U.S. media has a tendency to just sort of focus on something for a very short amount of time and then move on if there isn't sort of spectacular hyper-visible forms of either revolutionary change or violence. And I think that would be a mistake. And, um, you know, when I I did my fieldwork in Iran, one of the statements I heard often in interviews about the Green Movement and other forms of environmental and feminist protest was once the US media uh, stopped covering the Green Movement protests, that's when violence against protesters and the crackdown really intensified. So, first and foremost, I think solidarity means continuing to have these conversations, um, and protesters really need our support. Um, the second thing is to, again, continue to to center the voices of what Iranians within the country are demanding and really be skeptical of political agendas being read onto the protests. We have to be very careful about that. Um, There's ongoing ongoing conversations and discussions around how to keep the Islamic Republic accountable for vast um, human rights violations. Um, And one of those tools is sanctions and so um that has caused quite a lot of debate because on one hand broad-based sanctions has had devastating impacts uh, for Iranians within the country Um, i think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the Iranian diaspora whose family hasn't suffered irrespective of class from the sanctions um i mean speaking from personal experience i had two uncles pass away in the past five years Um, because they didn't have access to adequate medicine. um, And the health infrastructure has certainly been deeply impacted through sanctions, which was worse than through the COVID pandemic. Um, And so that's just one example of of sort of these devastating humanitarian impacts of sanctions. But I think there's an argument that can be made about targeted sanctions against regime officials. And what that would look like is the freezing of assets of those associated with the regime, um, travel bans, et cetera. There's also been calls um, for for countries to recall um, ambassadors, uh, from Iran, um, as well as temporary closures of Iranian embassies globally. And there's also been um, a number of folks uh, within the diaspora in the U.S. that have focused on on tech. And so one of the impacts of U.S. sanctions against Iran is... Um, barriers to getting certain forms of technology. So for example, there has been issues with accessing cloud-based technology that can be important for subverting the Islamic regime's uh, surveillance of different apps and forms of social media. So there's been urgent calls to lift those sanctions. Um, There have been calls to um, expand, for example, tour networks or um, this um, platform called Snowflake that would allow uh, protesters to be able to upload um, images and footage of, um, of human rights violations happening in real time. So so tech support is, is also part of, of these calls for solidarity. Um, yeah, so um, I think everyone's sort of brainstorming in the moment ways that, uh, that folks can show solidarity throughout the globe but not use language like regime change, um, you know, Western intervention, etc. And then finally, there are calls for engagement at the level of the international community. For example, Iran inexplicably is still part of the UN Commission of Women, which <laughs> that membership should be evoked immediately. Um, the UN um, Security Council I mean, that's very problematic, but we can think about um, at least, um, you know, condemnations from the United Nations. I think many of those questions are are really complicated, um, given four decades of threats of regime change uh, from Western powers in Iran.
1: But on the issue of uh, sanctions and their extreme punitive uh, measures, it gives the regime a bludgeon to beat the population with. Look what they're doing to you. You don't have food for your kids. You don't have medicine for your parents. They're sick. So it's, it's actually a weapon. It's something that has been weaponized by the regime to maintain its power. Oh,
0: absolutely, and I, 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 think that there's, I think that there are many critiques um, about um, the maximum pressure campaign and the way that the regime. Um, has used that as an excuse to cover corruption and economic mismanagement. and so I mean, the other part of this is the us. has sanctioned Iran in so many areas there's not really any more room to sanction anything else. Um so I think we need to we need to one think about how targeted sanctions against regime officials might help with with that accountability, but also at the same time think about how u s foreign policy or European foreign policy, which is often framed through the language of respecting Iranian human rights, can oftentimes worsen human rights conditions within the country and be really uh, strategic and thoughtful and intentional about how foreign policy can support support protesters as opposed to worsen conditions within the country. And it's a very tricky and complicated question.
1: The kind of anthem of the movement, the uprising, uh, is a... A song called "Brailler," uh, because of sung by Chervin. Hajipur, apparently it's a series of text messages or tweets.
0: I, I love um, the song by uh, Shervin Hajipur, who has unfortunately um, been detained. And there's a number of Iranian artists that have, you know, contributed to this moment through through anthems or songwriting. Um, actually, one of the first protesters condemned to death is is um, an Iranian Kurdish rapper who um who yes, who now has a, a death sentence for expressing solidarity with, with protesters. Um, but this particular song, Bad Oye, Because Of or For, um, was um, Hajipur collecting tweets from Iranians about why they are deciding to protest. And I'll just read a few of the tweets that are um, encapsulated in the song. Um, I mean, one of the first ones, like, Um, feels very emotional to read, um, but it's Baraye or Four Embarrassed Fathers with Empty Hands. And so I think this really gestures to um, the extreme economic precarity uh, that has impacted the vast majority um, of Iranians um, for yearning for a normal life. And I think this speaks to, um, you know, Asaf Bayat, an Iranian academic has written about this this movement as reclaiming life and talks about the colonization of everyday life um, and the denial of, of, of sort of normal pleasures by an elderly, patriarchal, clerical class. And so this yearning for a normal life, I think, really resonates with, with many Iranis, especially young ones. Um, For the dictatorial economy, um, also uh, gesturing towards grievances for this polluted air. um, I mean, many um, folks in the U.S. are unfamiliar with... um, all of the environmental justice movements that have taken place over the past decade and how that intersects with economic grievances as well as socio-political rights. Um, And then this one tweet for the dumpster diving boy and his dreams. Um, And so I just, I love that he brought together all of these tweets, these really heartfelt tweets about why people are risking their lives, gesturing to the hopelessness um, of life if this regime stays in power, um, but the hopefulness of this intersectional feminist Uprising that really is centering dreams of, of a normal life that has been denied to Iranians for over four decades.
1: I didn't quite understand the uh, environmental s- section you read.
0: Oh yes, um, so one of the one of the tweets that um, Hajipur uses in Baroye is is for the, the this polluted air. Um, so I think um, it's probably talking about the very polluted air within Tehran, um, but I think it also gesture towards. Um, In addition to the the labor rights movements and feminist movements and um, civil rights movements that have happened over the past decade, there's also been a number of environmental justice movements within the country. Many of which that are um, concentrated in ethnic minority communities. So in Ahvaz, which is um, which has a sizable Arab Iranian population, um, there have been protests over the past several years, uh, many of that are women led. With slogans that they can't breathe because of the polluted air, we can think about in Esfahan, for example, drought-stricken farmers that were uniting with protesters in 2017 and 2019 about water scarcity and how this has contributed to economic grievances because of the lack of protection for environmental resources. And so when I hear him sing about polluted air, I think about how environmental grievances have gendered class and ethnic impacts within the country. Um, And this latest uprising is also building on environmental justice movements within the country that are, again, not very visible to Euro-American audiences, but are really important within the context of, of thinking about this important part of women life freedom. Like what is life? You know, life is is not just socio political rights and civil rights, but life is also water and food and and land and and, and these also deserve attention in, in this uprising.
1: If you close your eyes for a moment, is another Iran possible? What would it look like?
0: Oh absolutely I have complete faith in Iranians to envision a radically new future, one that is based on respect for human rights, um, democratic principles. It's such a rich country with, with with such an incredibly long and rich history. And, you know, for, for those that have had um, the opportunity to travel to Iran, and I know D- David, you've traveled there. You know that it's a country that is so culturally rich from beautiful architecture to a long history of poetry, intellectual thought, philosophy, medical advancements, astronomy. You know, it's it's really been the epicenter of, of really important civilizational shifts um, and remains, you know, one of the most highly educated populations in the world. A lot of U.S. audiences don't know this, but I've traveled throughout the Middle East and Iran is the most Pro-American country that I've ever been in in the Middle East, um, because of course the population is not represented by by its government, um, and I just I just think with this with this richness um, of, of, of culture and also with this rich history of of having social movements, just think about the the 1906 constitutional revolution that was envisioning a free and democratic Iran more than 100 years ago. And so I absolutely have faith that eventually this regime will fall and that if given the space and time that Iranians will create this beautiful country that I think we've all been yearning for, despite these numerous interruptions from without in terms of imperialist interventions and from within by despotic regimes. And I absolutely have faith in these young, courageous girls that are articulating this on a daily basis. And that that gives me so much hope. Zan
1: Zandegi Azadi. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, David. You were just listening to Marie Ranjbar, Iran. Zan Zandagi Azadi, Woman, Life, Freedom. I talked with her on November 18th in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado. Marie Ranjbar is an assistant professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her research examines social movements in Iran. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. with supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Vijay Prashad, Chris Hedges, Angela Davis, Arundhati Roy, and Tarek Ali. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting. AlternativeRadio.org. To order copies of today's program, Marie Ranjbar on Iran, Zan Zendagi Azadi, Woman, Life, Freedom, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Notes on Resistance, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's one 800 444 or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us, one 800 1977 Special thanks to Nader Hashemi and KGNU. Joe Richie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Sherveen Hajipur, singing the anthem of Iran's protest movement, Baraye, Because Of. خوهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای... این هوای آلوده برای ونی شده رخت فرسوده برای پیوز و اعتمال ان برای سگ های بیگناه ممنوع برای گریه های بیوقه برای تصویر <تصفيق>